Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Before we go into today's episode, I wanted to mention that this is the last episode of the season. We've already started working on season four and we're going to be ambitious. In the meantime, we'll continue to post bonus content every week, including audio versions of the Fringe Legal Edge segments and highlights from the Fringe Legal Virtual Summit. By the way, if you haven't already subscribed to a weekly newsletter, be sure to do so. It includes three to five highlights from the past week, interesting things to think about, what to watch, listen, and things to try out. You can subscribe at www.fringelegal.com. Finally, I'm excited to present this episode. I really had a great chat with Mike and reflecting on the conversation, and which by the way, we recorded towards the start of this year, it stuck out to me how deeply the idea of the supply chain resonated with me. Uh, the legal supply chain and specifically the legal value supply chain is something that's extremely important and uh, be on the lookout for more things to come on that in the near future. Since we recorded this, Mike has also launched the Lawyer Forward podcast. So be sure to check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, without further ado, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I am absolutely delighted today to have Mike Whalen on the show. Mike is the author of Lawyer Forward. Mike, thank you for joining me today. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak to you. I actually got connected to you, as I mentioned before, uh, through somebody else who came on the podcast, who's a, a big fan. So Jan, if you're listening, thanks thanks so much for, for letting me know of Mike's work. So Mike, you are the author of Lawyer Forward. You also have a really interesting story. Uh, so you used to work in logistics and had a law practice. And now I guess you're an author and do a lot of other things. So I think that's probably a great place to start. Tell us a little bit about that journey, what that was like to you and how you came to certainly law practice and we can go from there. Yeah, well, briefly, there was no plan whatsoever. I will say that first. So, you know, a lot of people now that I've kind of wrapped my work together, it seems like I had a plan. No, I got into transportation because I had a girlfriend who looked like Drew Barrymore and for some reason wanted to try to talk like her. It was very awkward. And her dad owned a trucking company. And so I got into that. And, you know, I was in the supply chain for a while in logistics and it kind of shaped my thinking. And then I went to undergrad and all the while I'm getting married and having kids as we go, we just are, are stupid and just kept making babies and going to school anyway. And yeah, and so my undergrad was in uh, Middle East studies and I had, you know, some chemistry background during that time as well because I thought I wanted to be pre-dental. I think the theme you're catching is that I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. Just and little, then, yeah. yeah, right. And then I decided to go to law school in 2008, which turned out to be hilarious <laughs> and came out, ran my own practice. And from the start, you know, as, even when I was in law school, I really enjoyed talking to other, at that time, students and then lawyers about kind of the basic business principles that I learned when I worked in the supply chain. A surprising number of law students have 
not had a, a job before or been, it, certainly not for, you know, the 10 years that I was. So some of the things that I was taking for granted were really new to people. Mm-hmm. And over time, I realized that the sort of systems level thinking that I was trained in was groundbreaking, right, in legal. And we could talk about why that is. But yeah, I just have been focusing on that and focused on my writing. And it's led me to this weird place I'm in now. (laughs) Awesome. And I'm sure we will cover more of what that weird place is a bit later. And one of the things I definitely wanted to touch upon is, you know, what you said, where I guess a lot of lawyers and law students just don't have the basic principles down. I think it's, and so I went to law school and I, I did a similar route to you where I actually worked for a little while uh, before I went to law school and took the bar in the UK and so on. And it was astonishing how many people had a lack of understanding of really simple business skills. And, you know, you go from that to a law firm, then you sort of miss out in this very big, essential, real world piece. And Uh, Well, the reason that's really interesting is that that's totally by design, right? The law school methodology that we use, the Langdale method, is legal analysis. It's it's reductivist. It's science from the late 1800s. It's breaking things down into pieces and then putting them back together in a linear way. That is classically what thinking like a lawyer means. The issue is that whether you're in consumer law or you're in big law, your clients want you to do more than that. They see you more as a consultant. So in big law, you hear the phrase, my lawyer just doesn't understand my business. And in consumer level law, you hear my lawyer just doesn't fight for me. In both of those instances, I don't think that's about customer service. That's those people saying, bro, I have a big picture, right? Like I've got a life, I've got goals. And all you're telling me is this linear transactional, go get the thing that I exactly told you. Like, you know, Tony Lupino put it as, you know, there are kind of three kinds of lawyers. There's the no lawyer who just says no to everything. (laughs) There's the solutions lawyer, which is, oh, you want that thing. Let me tell you how to get it. And then there's what he he calls the true counselor. Mm. And All of that true counselor stuff that he describes is systems level thinking. It's big picture thinking. It's more like an ecologist than a physicist. And yet our legal education is still, that system is still built on the Langdale method, which is a hundred and whatever, 30 years old now. Right. A lot of people tend to get quite defensive of that, right? You hear the words and I've certainly been guilty of saying it. Oh, well, I think like a lawyer and It's important to understand that that's okay, but that's a specific type of mental framework or a mental model that you should have. And it works really well when you apply it in specific situations that is designed for, right? There are some instances where absolutely thinking in that way is probably going to get you to the best outcome in the shortest amount of time, but that is not every situation. And certainly that is not, you know, as you said, that's not the big picture. If you're thinking about the big picture, that should be one part of that. And there should be other models or frameworks or whatever you want to call them that you need to be able to apply. But people sort of 
almost start undermining that, right? It's almost, to, to me at least, very much my personal opinion that it's almost on the same level as saying someone is a non-lawyer, almost in a derogatory way, because it doesn't take anything away, right? Just because you're a lawyer, you can, you're also a non-doctor in a lot of cases. I'm sure there's some overlap somewhere. But that doesn't mean like you don't see doctors calling their patients non-doctors, right? right. You, you should be there to counsel people and listen to everything. And maybe you have, 50, 60% of the answer, but the other time, ask the questions, and people don't tend to do that as much. Well, and Tony's three kinds of lawyers, what's interesting about them is we're all asked to be that lawyer at different points in time, right? Like sometimes we genuinely have to be the no lawyer. Yeah. We can't just be enablers all the time. There are times that we have to say, say, you cannot do that. And sometimes, like you said, we have to be the solutions lawyer. We have to use that mindset to get somebody where they're going. But you know, in this world that is highly complex, I, I think you might have read the article, The End of Law Schools, and he talks about at the time that Langdale came up with this education system, there was no administrative state, right? We didn't have right. all these rules. There were no large corporations. So the complexity that has built up, we need to adjust to that complexity in a way that we don't just think linearly, we can think in the bigger picture, which again, my background forced me to do that. Mm -hmm. And now in law, just serendipitously, I'm like, oh, that is what we need here too. So, yeah. And it's finding that really uh, sort of sweet spot in the middle. So you mentioned the word systems level thinking a number of times uh, in your book, you talk about uh, the legal supply chain, a, a topic which sounds really boring, but I think is absolutely fascinating, at least to me. And since you write about it, I'm going to make an assumption that you probably think is quite cool as well. So give, give us an overview of what that is for those that may not be familiar with that sort of phrase, what that means to you. And I'd love to chat a bit more about that. Well, I will simplify it by the original title of the book, Lawyer Forward, was actually Lawyering in the Star Trek Economy, and which my wife told me is way too nerdy, and Darlene Tonelli in Toronto. So credit to her for making me switch it. But <laughs> in, in brief, there was a, there's a writer for TED. Her name is Nilifer Merchant, really bright lady. And she was doing an article in a series about the 30th or 50th, whatever it was, anniversary of, of Star Trek. And the question that was put to all these writers was, how are we doing relative to what Star Trek predicted? Mm -hmm. And all of the other articles were like, in medical technology, we've gone here, we've got cell phones, we've got tasers, you know, we've, we've built all these technologies. Right. But she asked, have we made the social change? In Star Trek, there's a world of complete abundance and complete connection. Mm -hmm. And to her, you know, her argument was that means each person can do what they do really well in service of a larger goal connected by technology. Right. At the beginning of the book, I've got a quote from Kevin Kelly, who's a really smart futurist. I think he was the founder of Wired Magazine, if I remember right, where he says, communal intelligence is the singularity. Yep. The singularity refers to essentially when robots get smarter than us and start making smarter robots. He doesn't like that phrase. What he says is, no, it's when we put our knowledge together, when individuals, you know, aren't floating like bubbles out in the world, but we can figure out through these complex networking principles how to connect all of our knowledge. I humbly tried to apply that to the law firm model and created kind of a more collaborative view. 
more similar to the way the supply chain works. And you're really saying that essentially within this network, and this was in the book as well, that you have really two core pieces, right? One is a node or nodes, which are these players or individuals within the supply chain. And then there's the link that connects each of them together. And that's the kind of the cause and effect relationship. And, and to Kevin Kelly's point, um, it, it's more about getting on that exponential curve through communal communal intellect, right? So you're trying to essentially leverage the learning before, but also together. So as individual, you strive to be, and I'm very much paraphrasing and making my own sure. thing up now, um, but you're <laughs> essentially trying to, to do the best that you can as an individual, but as a community, as part of that network, you're trying to leverage all of that so you get significant gains much faster and, at a, and it goes up exponentially. Well, and I should say, in the book, I give a very simple version, which is essentially A leads to B leads to C, which is the most simple kind of, you know, uh, systems relationship. And and since people think of the supply chain as a chain, I, I, I would just say a law firm can operate that way. And that's how I talk about it. You know, there's handoffs, you collaborate with people outside of the firm, somebody's overseeing it, which I think is fundamental mm -hmm. to this thing working. But in my dream world, there's not just Bobby gives, does a project, gives it to Sally, right. who does a piece, who gives it to Bobby. In my dream world, there are feedback loops of information inside these communities. So in big firms, they refer to knowledge management, which yeah. different firms are better and worse at it. But, but that is a feedback loop. That is the, the big firm saying, we can get smarter as a firm by capturing these things that we keep using and our knowledge can grow exponentially as we work together with each other. We're not just relying on the individual being really smart in individual silos, which is how a lot of big firms work because they're so specialized. But we can say, what's the power of the network? And the really smart big firms are figuring out how to do that. Yeah, very, very much so. And I, I think one of one of the things I should say I like I really liked about the book is A, it's super easy to read. And B, it's very personal. There's a lot of stories about you, your family and so on, which just makes it relatable and certainly memorable. And I think within the supply chain, I remember I think it was uh door to daughter supply chain that you talk about that helps to sort of encapsulate the idea, certainly right. for me. So I remember it even now. And then to talk about the, sort of the churn as we sort of think about what the problem is before we start talking about like you know these are some things that people need to be aware of in your in your practice days what what did you sort of notice that was i guess the switch going off or the light bulb going off for you uh, that sort of got things in motion well and it's interesting you mentioned the light bulb because it starts with the story of how paul cravath who created, you know, the big firm system, the capital S system, how he represented George Westinghouse against right. Thomas Edison. And it was in that case that Cravath said, wow, Thomas Edison is running these knowledge workers like a really interesting factory, an ideas factory, he referred to it as. And then he said, why can't I do that as a law firm? And, and what's interesting is he created this, this kind of churn model where you put individual workers kind of on their own project, in a bit of a bubble, and then when they find a solution to whatever, they raise their hand, Thomas Edison slaps his brand on it, and then 
goes and sells it for a whole lot of money. The person who came up with the thing doesn't connect with other people. They don't get any credit for it. It's really easy to get burned out. That, that's the churn model that you certainly see in big firms, which is why you have so much turnover. But it's especially grueling in small firms because we're trying to do everything at once. You mentioned right. the kind of two principal functions on a supply chain, or at least the most profitable functions, which are the deep expertise, the things nobody else can do, and then the, the service-oriented, the point-of-sale type stuff. Mm-hmm. Law- solo and small firm lawyers are expected to be both. Right. And it's just grueling because you can't be both. It is just impossible to be available all the time and still do the work of expertise. And in our really complex modern legal system, clients expect both of those. They expect you to be a super nerd about the exact thing that they're dealing with because they saw that on TV. (laughs) And then they expect you to be incredibly responsive and there for them all the time because that's what Amazon taught them, right? And so my argument in this is don't stop doing that, right? Don't try to do both, but recognize that that's the consumer's you know, they're not stupid for believing this. They get to think and want whatever they want. You do have to adapt to what they want, but stop doing it by trying to be both at the same time. That's, that's what I realized in my story was that I was doing both. And it was really eating away at me and, and other lawyers that I saw operating in what I call the churn model of practice. And then as, as you came to that realization, right? So you're saying you should do one or the other, or at least well. So you're either a deep expert or you're highly, highly service oriented. What, what, what was your action? What did you do when you came to this realization? Assuming you did something about it. Yeah, cried a lot, mostly. <laughs> you know, and I'm stumbling my way through this, obviously, as I, as I try to figure these things out. But, you know, initially I, I thought... Maybe I should be the deep expert. And I explored that model and I built a whole business model and mapped it out and talked to really smart people. But then over time, as I spoke loudly about these things and I was just, you know, I used the phrase, be yourself loudly. I kept doing me loudly and I was writing more. And I realized, you know, in high school, I learned to write as a survival mechanism because I hate homework. Right. Um, And so I would do no homework all year. And then at the end, I would write a paper and I would pass. I realized that that ability to communicate and to tell stories and to to take the complex and make it accessible, that was a skill that I could really move the industry with and by that help consumers, which is Mm -hmm. all of our ultimate, ultimate goal. And so I really started focusing on my writing. And since then, that's that drives most of what I do. Awesome. And for for others that may be in not similar situations where I say are thinking about this, what are some of the, other than of course reading your book, what are some of the other resources or things that you think they can do as an exercise to start figuring out, you know, what, what might be a good next step or, you know, how should they tackle this, this issue? Well, yeah, there are a bunch of books in there that I cite. I would highly recommend the book, The Business of Expertise by David C. Baker, because you can read that and say, is that, is that what I want to be? You know, you don't know. Or you can read a business like The E-Myth and say, or a book like The E-Myth and say, is that what I want to be, which is more entrepreneurial driven. And you'll see as soon as you read it, 
you know, if you read both of those, you'll see the difference in the two books. As far as a guide, I came up with a question one time in a conversation with my friend Megan Xavier. I, she was debating what kind of firm am I trying to build? And I said to her, let me ask you this. If you had a week, you had your ideal week this week, you're doing idealized design. Would you rather write a book or manage a bunch of people? And she said she would rather write a book. Now, that's not, that is not the answer for everybody. I think right. every lawyer thinks they want to write a book, but it is grueling. It is really difficult. And I don't think most of us, you know, many of us don't want to write a book. We don't want to become that person. We want to be the kind of person that, that's coming up with ideas all the time and thinking of solutions. It's just a different personality. So evaluate, you know, through that question, do you want to write a book or manage people? To be clear, there are other roles in the legal right. supply chain. You can take outsourced work. You can be in a basement doing uh, doc review. You can write as a freelancer. All of that stuff is available and fine. The reason in this book I say, let's take those two far pillars is because A, they're the most profitable uh, pieces of a supply chain and B, they're just the stark difference makes it the most easy to see the difference. So I would ask that question about writing a book versus managing people, see how you feel and give some things a try, right? Yep. You know, I, I like the juxtaposition of those two things because they are very different. And yes, writing a book, even though I have, I've attempted it, so I have not succeeded. Uh, and I, you know, kudos to you for getting, getting through it. It is grueling work and just sort of organizing your thoughts and putting something together like that. It, it is, it is quite a lot, which is why I stick to podcasting much, much easier to just speak right. out loud. And, and then, so, I mean, a lot of the work that you've done and I guess through your background, it is focused on solo practitioners or maybe on the small firm side of things. And I think that's really important because actually it's easy to forget, especially in the world that I am probably most familiar with, that you know, it, the world isn't just made up of large law firms, not the Amlaw 100 or the, the Global 150 or whatever it might be. There are other practices, you know, all the way from one, one up to whatever, 10, 15, 20, that actually serve the majority of the individuals in a lot of countries. So, but I think a lot of, a lot of what would help those individuals as small as the sort of practitioners is in the book. How, how does that thinking relate to uh, an associate in a large law firm, right? So that's, if yeah, it's, that it's, path or something like that, what happens then? Yeah, it's a really good question. And in fact, when I shared this book with a friend of mine who is a big firm lawyer, she responded, oh, here's how we do this in the big firm <laughs> and went out to, to lay out how her big firm is already doing this. And it was, I love this, this person, but she was totally wrong. To, to, to give you a, a counter example, I, I, uh, there's a story that I, that I reference in the book. There was a designer in the UK who decided one day to make a toaster. He was gonna make an artisan toaster from scratch, get all of his own materials. He's gonna not use the complex supply chain. He's gonna go do it all himself. And it took him a year and a half, and the thing costs like $2,300. It was a five pound toaster. And he ends up spending $2,300 on it. And when he plugged it in, it melted. Oh. And there's this <laughs> melted toaster in this design school in the UK. and you know, his take home was basically that we think we understand the complexity of the of the supply chain, but that complexity in a weird way feeds efficiency, cost control, and quality in a way that we just wouldn't expect. We think we're all artisans. And of course, in a big firm, we're taught 
to, you know, when we're taught in law school, we're taught to be sort of artisanal. We can do it all. We can make it from scratch. Again, the Langdell method is law is a science. And so you need to become a scientist so you can apply this specific kind of reasoning to all different kinds of contexts. But when you go to a big firm, it doesn't really feel like that. You're, you're kind of a cog in a larger machine. The, the shift that's going on in big firms that I just find fascinating is because of this complex administrative state, because of these large corporations, mm-hmm. it's gotten so big that what a lot of big firm lawyers did was niche really yeah. far, right? They become the super nerd at some really narrow thing. But when you do that, it's easier to replace you with a non-lawyer consultant, So, for example, if you're an ERISA lawyer, right, Mm -hmm. and I'm a business and I can choose to give you, Mr. ERISA lawyer, something, or I can hire an ERISA consultant and I can give her way more to work on around the problem that relates to ERISA, I'm going to start moving work that way. And so yesterday I spoke to some big firm attorneys and I asked them about this. I said, where's your competition coming from? Mm-hmm. And, and they said, oh, it's coming from outside kinds of businesses. I said, it's not other big firms. They said, no. They said, what's happening right now is it's these consultancies, these, the big four is the big risk right now that they can come in because we've become so specialized and take these pieces. I said, right. well, what are you doing about it? Are you hiring people who develop these systems level competencies and these more what we call soft skills? And they said, oh no, the clients still tell us that what they want is top grades from top schools. And I said, are you doing that? And they said, <laughs> oh yeah, we're definitely just hiring those people. I said, well, that, that sounds like you're giving them what they asked for, but you're not giving them what they want, right? What, what they seem to want because they're taking all your work and giving it to someone else is something more like a consultancy. And another lady that, I, that was there, I said, so what are you guys doing? In response to that, are you niching even more where you're getting super nerdy mm-hmm. and you're going to, you know, a lot of people are saying the big firms will probably consolidate and, and there will be fewer, but there'll be super niche collections of super nerds. Or are you focusing on these more consultancy level skills, these more big picture, think like an ecologist skills? And she said, big firms are hedging their bets. They're doing both. She said, we're hiring top grades from top schools, but we're trying to teach them to be these other kinds of people. Right. So if I'm at a big firm, which I'm not, but if I were at a big firm, I would do the same. I would hedge your bets, right? (laughs) If what got you here won't get you there, basically. If being the super niche, super nerd through law school, you did all the things you're supposed to, you got the right job and you wrote on the right journal and you were in your bubble in school and now you're in your bubble at, in your firm job, do not rest on your laurels. You don't know that that's going to be the business model in 10 years. You have no idea that that firms don't even know if that's the business model in 10 years. So what I would encourage you to do is hedge your bets in the same way that I would advise a solo, learn some of these consultancy skills, learn to think like an ecologist, learn to see the big picture and communicate better. All that same advice I would give to an associate. Yeah, and and that's super interesting because I mean, we talked about feedback loops before and part of that, I I guess the the non-changing nature is a broken feedback loop, right? 
something happens, you hear from clients that they've, you know, given your work away to someone who's more of a consultant and you go back and instead of iterating on that and doing something different, you're just like, oh, we'll continue doing the same thing. We're hearing the right things. Whereas the alternative, the hedging the bet aspect of things is just branching that off. And maybe, you know, it's hedging the bets in a, in, in a smart way where you're saying, okay, maybe let's try encouraging a small group to think more like consultants, to act more like consultants and be the counselors as we talked about in the three buckets before and see what that mm-hmm. ha- what happens there. It is very interesting. Well, and and I mean, isn't that a great example of the lawyer mind that I was talking <laughs> to? He was thinking very linearly. He was like, the clients asked us to get the top grades at the top school. So that's what we do. I'm like, you're getting that, but they're still giving your work out to other people. Do you not see the bigger picture problem? And the lady that I spoke to, she is not trained as a lawyer. She was, she was trained in technology and she was the one that said, oh no, we, I'm seeing both and we're trying to train for both. Just a really interesting example of we are trained to think right. by design in the do this, then do this, then you'll get your outcome. We've got to start thinking more like our clients do, more like they want us to, which is more in this bigger picture kind of way. I come across all the time and the way I think about it is, you know, you have really two options. If someone gives you a problem, the immediate and probably the more natural reaction, certainly for lawyers, but for, I think for most, most humans is, okay, I hear a problem. How do we solve the problem? Right. Right. Uh, There are others. And I, I would argue is a better approach where when you hear something like that, your reaction shouldn't be, let me give you the solution. It should be, let me find out a bit more, really truly understand where this is coming from. Are you essentially doing a little bit more discovery? And then you suggest a couple of things, one of which might be a potential solution. But I think certainly from a lawyer way of thinking, you are so rigid and yep, this is, yep, I hear you, this fits into this box. And therefore, when we've seen this before, this is the solution. Of course, not all the time. And I am generalizing, sure. but that, that seems to be a big issue there. Well, and again, by design, and I, I will right. say there are methodologies there, you know, you can get books on, there's a book called Systems Thinking for Social mm-hmm. Change that helps a lot about uh, with this. IDEO publishes a lot about human-centered design. There are tools for these methodologies, and I, I go to firms and I teach them some of these things. So if you need help with that, reach out to me. But I'll give you a, a very tangible example of the difference in the kinds of thinking. When I was at the University of Texas School of Law, I was in the Children's Rights Clinic, which represents kids who have been removed from their parents because of abuse or neglect, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I go in one day uh, to the office in the clinic, and my advisor, Lori, is crying. And I walked up to her and I said, you know, what, what's, what's wrong? I, I was a little older than the other students, so we were, we were friends and we talked about life things. And right. I walked up and I said, what's going on? What's, what's wrong? And, and she pointed to a new client that had just come in. The client was the child of a woman who Lori had represented as a child 20 years before, right? Oh, wow. So 
transactionally, right. Lori dealt with that child 20 years ago, got her to a spot that was an immediate solution, et cetera. But in terms of systems level injustice, you've got these, you know, she called them repeat customers. You've got these repeat customers because we're not addressing the system. Medicine has a very similar issue. Uh, African-American women are four times as likely to die from complications of being pregnant and childbirth than white women. And the, transactionally, you can go back and say, you know, here's our administrative process. We thought we did it right. But you're having a net negative effect because when you're overwhelmed, studies show you get tribal. You help people that you see that look like you. So, And you see the same in the justice system, that we've got this disproportionate number of minorities in prison in the United States. And Although you could go back and transactionally, every lawyer could say, no, that arrest was good or, or, or I see where the judge came from here or whatever. In the net, you have these systems level pictures. And so I believe that we lawyers have a duty. Yes, we are zealous advocates, mm -hmm. but our ultimate function is to serve society. And if we can't think at least, much less address in these systems level issues, we're seeing these repeated systems level injustices that are real as you say it it perpetuates every every facet of the system right all the way from the examples you're giving to a more i guess a business to business context where it may not be even though there are humans involved it feels like you're sort of just dealing with corporations so it becomes so important to be able to be really mindful about you know, how you're thinking and how you're adapting and really having a blind spot for these kinds of things to know, ooh, maybe have I got myself pigeonholed into this way of thinking? Yeah, and a lot of these big, these large corporations, by the way, are, are adding a role called the chief sustainability officer, mm -hmm. which in part has to do with the environment, but generally it has to do with how are we competitive in 20 years, right? That's, mm -hmm. they have a role where they're thinking very large picture. And you know, maybe those corporations don't need their lawyers to be that, that person, but most of these corporations, the lawyers that they identify as the really good lawyers are the ones who think like chief sustainability officers right. and can at minimum address that. Yeah, exactly. And it is having that sort of future vision because things sometimes, you know, as they are now, uh, as you said, no one knows what, you know, what it will be like in sort of five, 10 years time. But I think one of the things we can pretty set, be certain of is it's going to be pretty different from what it is now. Mm. And then so the, the last thing, just be mindful of time. I know some of the, one of the pieces of work that you worked on recently is looking at overwhelm and certainly overwhelm within lawyers. Tell me a bit more about that. I, I actually don't know any much, anything more than that as we only sort of spoke about it for 30 seconds before we started yeah. recording. So, well, so briefly, PricewaterhouseCooper has created a, a tool for the smaller market called Insights Officer, and it's an outsourced bookkeeping tool, basically. So they reached out to me and said, look, our, our research is showing that attorneys are motivated to come to us when they feel overwhelmed. Can you reach into this issue, figure out why are they so overwhelmed? Why has productivity not made it so that 
they've reached this state of bliss that we've been talking about for a hundred years. And in short, I, I think a big part of it is, especially if you're in a billable hour context, we are really focused on time, on productivity relative to time. Right. But in systems thinking, we talk about stocks or bathtubs, like we use the bathtub analogy, that there are different kinds of bathtubs and some of them are perception and some of them are emotional, right? And there's a, just like a bathtub, there's a faucet coming in and there's a drain going out. And when we think of time as our only bathtub, we tend to ignore our emotional capacity, our ability to basically give a crap about other people, right? right. It's called emotional labor when we're, and we as lawyers are required to subdue our interests to the client's interests. So our emotional labor is arguably one of the largest in the services industry. And then we also have a cognitive maximum. We have our cognitive capacity that's limited in both of those other bathtubs. By maximizing our time, we could start seeing drains in our cognitive and our emotional load. So in small law, this isn't happening in big firms because you guys are already dealing with this. There's this, there's this idea that if we can just make small firm lawyers more efficient, mm. they could take on twice as many clients for half the money, bada bing, bada boom, justice gap solved. Nice. And I'm like, are you guys paying attention to medicine at all? These doctors who take 100 client patients in a day, all they do is just because we can't give a crap about 100 people, all they do is they hand out whatever prescription commercial they saw yesterday or whatever the, the person, had, this is the opioid crisis, right? <laughs> These doctors can't give their full mental and emotional capacity to that many transactions in a limited amount of time. And so what, what I'm advocating for to, to the small firm lawyers specifically is manage those other bathtubs. And what I would say to the big firms, you keep talking about work-life balance, mm -hmm at some frou-frou nice to have, this is not a spacey idea. This is the capacity of your lawyers to deliver on the promises made to the clients. If all you see them as is a time bathtub and you're ignoring that emotional and that cognitive bathtub, this is when you see way more ethical issues, you see way more errors, you have to pay attention to those other bathtubs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the, the, I think human well-being becomes super important because, you know, traditionally in this profession, people have worked extremely long hours and, you know, it's kind of become this sort of badge of honor. It's like, yeah, I work, you know, I, I stayed in the office for a week, two weeks working on a transaction, didn't go home. And then you get a little break and then you go back to it. And I, it's just not sustainable over the long term. Right. And, you know, it, I think there's, we're at a point where people realize that maybe it's a problem and they're trying to do something about it. And to, to credit, you know, there's a lot of law firms that have, certainly the larger law firms that have put systems and items in place to do, to actually almost force people to take breaks and do things around that. Right. Uh, but overwhelmingly, it still is a, a massive issue, right? This work-life balance uh, issue is quite serious. And I, I don't think people realize 
how severe it becomes. I mean, what, what I find interesting is as I speak to a lot of law students who are going into the profession now or the much younger lawyers, they have a very different expectations because a lot of their friends are you know, hmm. working in other industries where they work just as hard uh, they make probably the same amount of money or whatever else is important to them, but they do have, get to have a life. Right. Even, you know, I, I have some friends who are doctors and so on. And yeah, they might be on call and, you know, they may have to go into the hospital unex- unexpectedly every now and then, but they can have a life. And I think that's becoming the standard that a lot of these younger individuals are expecting when they go into the legal profession as well. Right. Well, ultimately, and I think this is the point in the book and that I would make generally just to bring it all back around, mm-hmm. clients don't care about your hours. It doesn't mean anything to them. They don't care what day you did stuff. It's a substitute for what they actually care about. All anyone cares about because we're all just people. We care about service and we care about expertise delivered. And so if you recognize that those are the two things that clients actually care about, Mm -hmm. you start to build a business that optimizes for that. And so whether whatever size firm, this is inside and outside of law, if those are the goods that your clients expect, you should pay attention to the factors that actually contribute to that. Yep, very much so. And I think that's a perfect sentiment to end this discussion on. So Mike, thank you so much. So Mike Willen, author of Lawyer Forward, Finding Your Place in the Future of Law. I know you speak quite a lot. I know you're very prolific on social media. So I'll include your LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, I, I don't know if you have any sort of plans of speaking at any conference or anything else like that, or if people want to get in touch, what's the best way? Yeah, I have a few coming up, but I think this will post after those speaking opportunities happen. But reach out to me at Twitter is, listen, Twitter is cheaper than therapy. (laughs) So I am on the Twitter machine all the time. I apologize to everyone in advance, but I'm at Mike Whalen Jr. So it's M-I-K-E-W-H-E-L-A-N-J-R. And then on LinkedIn, I'm the same. The only time I'm ever on LinkedIn is when I post an article. i I don't like maintaining a blog. So every once in a while, I get mad enough that I write an article and and it goes up there. But I'm very active on Twitter and so is Law Twitter in general. Just a great place to talk about the future and and taking care of our whole selves and and really systemizing our self-acceptance and being us out loud. So so take a look at, at the Law Twitter lists and the people I follow. Lots of smart minds there. Fantastic. Yeah. And we'll also link to your book, which uh, I, I would highly recommend. It's a great read regardless of actually, regardless of whether you're in legal or not, but certainly if you work in a law firm, small, large, sold a practice, it's worth checking out as well. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.